Thank you for joining me for the 12th episode of the Doc Talk with Liz podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Tomas Garzon Mavdi. Dr. Mavdi is a neurosurgeon at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. In this episode, we discuss his journey into neurosurgery, his research, and how he manages a work-life balance. We also talk about glioblastoma, approaching a neurosurgery, and patient-centered care. Um, hello, Dr. Uh, Garzon Mavdi. Thank you for joining us today. For oh, thank you for having me, Lizzie. Yes, absolutely. So um, I know that you do, uh, you're a neurosurgeon right now in Texas. Um, but first, I wanted you to kind of talk about your journey into medicine, uh, like not necessarily straight into neurosurgery, but like everything that kind of led you to like just going into medicine in general. Yeah, so um, I think and I don't remember this, ever since I was a little kid, I would say that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon in Harvard, and I missed by a lot of miles, but <laughs> but uh, then I forgot about that idea, and, and I went through, you know, elementary school, middle school, um, high school, and I was really, really good at math, and so in Mexico, you have to decide what you want to do right out of high school. You don't go to college. Oh, by the way, I'm from Mexico, and uh, and so... Uh, in high school, I used to go to the math Olympics and all this stuff. And I really liked math. And I was thinking of being an engineer, but there was something boring about math uh, that, that uh, I thought I needed a little bit more of a challenge than math. And, uh, and so I decided to make the leap to medicine. And, uh, and, you know, and always I've been interested in biology and, and, uh, and the human body and helping people more, more than anything. And so then I went to medical school and uh, uh, so I lived in the north of Mexico and then I, I, went, I looked up all the medical schools and I applied to only one medical school, which is a government school that was the first one. It always ranked the first in the national uh, exams and national rankings. And, and so I went and, and it was a little bit difficult because they didn't want people from out of state applying to that school. But I, I don't even remember, remember what I did, but I ended up applying, taking the exam. And, um, and I remember I was number 12 ranked exam. Oh, which, wow. Uh, I, oh, oh, my. Yes. <laughs> and I was really excited because it was a very difficult school to get in. And I got in. And suddenly at 17, I am moving out of my house uh to go to medical school and my my parents you know they supported me all the way I, I, I mean this when I say this everything my parents did was geared to their they wanted us to have a, a better opportunity than they did and so and, and really we did and so then I went to medical school and um you know I wanted to do something difficult that was challenging and uh, that allowed for me to do research and so in the last year of medical school, you have two options. You can either go and do social service, which means that uh, you go to a rural clinic and take care of people in rural places that don't have access to medicine. Or uh, if you're part of the top 5% of the class, then they allow you to do a, a full year doing research, whether that's clinical research or basic science research, if you find a mentor. <clears throat> and I found a mentor who's a nephrologist. His name is Gerardo Gamba. And, um, and he has a nephrology lab studying 
uh, ion co-transporters and the regulation mechanisms in the kidney. So I went there, I spent a year with him and I said, Dr. Gamba, I, I really need to continue this and be a physician, he says. And he said, you, you won't be able to do it well in Mexico. And he's probably one of the only examples that can do it in Mexico. Mm-hmm. And so he connected me to one of his colleagues in Ohio. And there, there I went doing a master's in neuroscience to Ohio. Spent two years doing um, neuroscience research in primary sensory neurons, studying the same transporters that I studied with Dr. Gamba. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, but I knew that I wanted to do neurosurgery. And so what I did in Mexico, if you want a letter of recommendation, you just call somebody up. They may know you or they may not know you. And so they give you a three-line letter saying, oh, he's good for, for the job. Hmm. And so I said, I need to find someone like that. And I'm looking through the web and I see a Mexican dude, Alfredo Quinones, and I'm like, I'm going to hit him up for a letter. Mm-hmm. And so I emailed him asking for advice for, to get into residency. And he said, why, why don't you come to my lab and visit me for a couple of weeks? And then, but I didn't ask him for the letter yet. Right. And so I got there and I saw medical students from Johns Hopkins working their butts off and I (laughs) felt ashamed so I didn't ask for the letter but I don't know he must have seen something in me or I must have communicated something to him but on one of the drives in the afternoon uh, from Bayview Hospital which is a satellite hospital to the main campus he said he he goes like this he has this pose that he loves he goes Tomas what what do you think about coming to work for me uh, for a couple of years and then we'll find ways to get you into residency? And I said, okay. Wow. <laughs> so I think that was my big break in luck. And so I finished my master's, joined his lab for a three-year postdoctoral fellowship studying brain tumor stem cell migration and tumor biology. And um, we had some really nice projects that I'm still passionate about. And then uh, we got federal funding using those projects with, with Dr. Quinones' lab. And I also worked with Dr. Rafael Tomargo and Dr. Henry Brem. And, um, and then came the time to apply for neurosurgery. And I applied to 90, 94 places, I think oh I remember. Goodness. Yeah, two thirds of them did not reply back saying whether I get an interview or not. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of the other ones that replied said no, and I got six interviews, six mm-hmm. interviews to go to programs. Um, most American students get uh, 20-some interviews, and they have to turn interviews down. <laughs> and so, you know, but I got really good interviews. I got Hopkins, Stanford, oh, wow. UCSD oh. with Dr. Carter. Wow. Yeah, I got uh, Thomas Jefferson University, Rochester, New York, and UCLA. Hmm. So really good interviews. Yeah. And so I got lucky and ended up at Hopkins. And, and then I did my residency there, worked again in the lab doing brain tumor immunotherapy research. And then I did a, a separate fellowship year where, you stu- where I trained specifically in skull-based tumor surgery. And now here I am in Texas uh, doing skull-based tumors and anything that I can do to help people with. Awesome. Um, so actually I have a question. So you said that, um, in Mexico, you just go like straight from high school to medical school. Yeah. Correct. So what was the exam that you had to take? Was it like similar to the MCAT kind of, or do you think? Uh, 
it's I guess you could compare it to the MCAT, but it it has stuff that is from from Mexico, like uh, the story, the history of, of that medical school, oh, I see. Um, a lot of anatomy and biology. So it's not quite like the MCAT. It does have math and all that stuff, but it has other nuanced stuff. I, it was 600, 600 uh, questions and it lasted two days, the exam. Oh my I remember gosh. that day two perfectly. Days. Yeah, we got, me and my father went uh, to San Luis and uh, we, we got there at 3 a.m. Um, he went and dropped me off at 6 a.m. at the exam. And then he just spent the whole day in a cafeteria nearby. And I just came out and I said, we're done. Let's go back. Wow, <laughs> that's crazy. Oh, my God. Yeah. So since you um, entered um, medical school straight from high school, and then I guess it was a four-year program mm -hmm. in Mexico still, right? No. So medical school in Mexico is a seven-year program. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. So you start... And a couple of differences with medical school here is that, for example, um, anatomy class there lasts for a whole year. Mm -hmm. Neuroanatomy itself is two months by itself. And some schools here have a few weeks of anatomy, seven to 14 weeks. Oh, wow. Uh, and the other advantage is that you don't have to pay student loans because it's a government university. Oh, wow. That's <laughs> they, nice. gave, they gave me 300 bucks a year. <laughs> so it was pretty good. Yeah, that's sounds, that, that does sound nice, I was going to say. Yeah. Um, I feel like, do you think that it would be an advantage, kind of, for, like, to have more time to go over those topics? But I guess maybe not if you're entering straight from high school, right? Because undergrad kind of prepares you for medical school in the United States. Well, you know, there's there's two things. I, I think going straight to medical school gives you time to focus. Um, it's a little bit hard because you're more mature when you're 17 compared to when you're 22. Right. But I, at least in my in my mind, you know, you're focusing on medicine. Why are you going to take other studies that are not related to medicine? There is some advantage to knowing more about culture and, um, and history and all those other things. So, for example, one thing that I wish I knew more about would be coding, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rely on you to teach me that. <laughs> But, uh, and so we, I didn't learn any of that. And, right. and so that, that's one of the things that you don't get in, in Mexico, but, but we do get very well trained in medicine and I would say Mexican doctors are second to none. Yeah, definitely. So like, um, also kind of going off this, like mentioning your research and stuff, I just want to clarify for like anybody that's going to be listening, you can like just have an MD and still do research and like do things like as a doctor in a hospital, right? 100%. So there's, and that's another thing. If I had to do it over again, I would apply for an MD PhD program because mm -hmm. I put in the five year research before residency. And so, you know, it'd be nice to have a PhD next to my name. Right. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that being said, I, I feel... Uh, competent to do research just with an MD. I did a master's too. Mm -hmm. That was all bench research. Uh, and so, yeah. Now, whether the PhD gives you an advantage or not, I think it does because you have formal training. Mm -hmm. But uh, for people who really are passionate about this, you know, you'll find a way to uh, find an answer to whatever question you're looking for. Right. Definitely. And yeah. 
Um, if I can ask, do you think that since you do research and like neurosurgery, do you like one more than the other? Or do you think that you like them both equally? I, I like them both equally. I'll tell you why. Because I think that as a neurosurgeon, no one knows brain tumors better than we do. Right. Nobody's seen them in person and taking them out and see how they invade important structures. And then nobody can put that together with what we see in the laboratory and really identify problems. Right. There's a lot of researchers that do have very interesting questions and are doing excellent work, but not even them who may be, you know, very important in their field. I don't think they understand brain tumors like we neurosurgeons. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, can I ask what kind of brain tumors do you like kind of research or? Yeah, so there's, I'm, I do a lot of research on glioblastoma, which is a, a very aggressive brain tumor that comes from the brain. Right. Other research opportunities, oh, well, the other part of my research is on skull-based tumors like meningiomas that can be very aggressive as well. Most of them are benign, but the, the really aggressive ones are just as bad as glioblastomas. Mm -hmm. And then brain metastases are also another interesting type of brain tumor that come from cancer outside of the brain. Mm -hmm. And so those are also interesting in the way that, that they come up from outside the brain and what makes them go there and how to treat them better. So right. any brain tumor for that matter is very, very interesting to me, but the main ones are pituitary and skull-based tumors and glioblastoma. Gotcha. To summarize, in the first part of this podcast interview, Dr. Garzan Mavdi mentioned that he has wanted to be a neurosurgeon since he was little, he was always good at math, but wanted more of a challenge, so decided to focus on medicine. He went to the top medical school in Mexico after taking the entrance, entrance exam and scoring very high on it. Dr. Garzan Mavdi contributes much of his success to his parents, who always supported him in everything he did. At the end of medical school, he made the decision to do research. He started in Mexico and eventually came to Ohio to study primary sensory neurons. After getting a master's in neuroscience, he found a professor of Hopkins to ask for a letter of recommendation. He ended up working in his lab for a few years to study tumor biology before going to residency. Lastly, Dr. Garzan Mavdi ended up doing his residency at Johns Hopkins. With this experience, he is still able to do research while still doing neurosurgery. He enjoys how research and neurosurgery relate to each other. And um, kind of talking about uh, glioblastoma a little bit more, what, um, can you just kind of walk uh, through like the uh, cells that those arise from maybe in the brain, like how glioblastomas arise? Yeah. So if I knew which cell gives origin to glioblastoma, I'd be a billionaire. But, <laughs> but there are many theories. The theory that I am uh, I'm, I'm, uh, biased towards is a theory that glioblastomas come from, from a stem cell population that lives all through the, through, throughout life. Mm -hmm. And so some of my colleagues have shown that there's stem cells in the human brain, even uh, at later stages in life. They are located in the, in the, in the subventricular zone, which is a little zone around the ventricles uh, that carries all the spinal fluid. And there's also stem cell-like cells in the hippocampus, which is one of the structures that gives us uh, ability to remember things. And so I think it comes from stem cells 
And these stem cells have something that starts going wrong with them and they start proliferating. And, uh, and that's why they're so difficult to treat because they are stem cells, they are very able to, to change into multiple different cells in different populations. And so with glioblastoma specifically, they are very heterogeneous tumors that have well-differentiated cells and non-differentiated cells. And they're very smart in the way that they recruit immune cells and immune cells make up about 40 to 50% of these tumors, which is oh, wow. insane if you think about oh, that. Wow. Yeah. yeah, that is. <laughs> yeah, they're called myeloid cells and they become myeloid-derived suppressor cells. Hmm. And so those are the ones that, that make the immune response dormant uh, when a brain tumor ensues. Right, gotcha. Yeah, that's, that is, that is uh, definitely really interesting. I actually didn't realize that that pop, that like the tumors made up of that many immune cells. I mean, like that's actually kind of shocking to be honest. It, it's kind of scary. Yeah, it's it scary because this, this tumor is so intelligent that it can subvert our immune system and our own cells and hijack all the defense mechanisms to keep growing and they are relentless. Yeah, definitely. So how do you, um, are those really mainly treated by uh, surgery or do you like start off with chemo or radiation or something? Yeah, so the, the mainstay of treatment today is surgery with maximal safe resection followed by radiation and chemotherapy. And the radiation and chemotherapy are concomitant, so they are at the same time. That being said, surgery is not a cure for these tumors. It never is, it never will be. Uh, and the reason for that is that these cells migrate into normal brain. And whether I resect the whole tumor or I resect more than what the tumor is, it 100% of the time keeps coming back. Really? Wow. Yeah. Mm. And so, and so that, that, that is one, one of my objectives to see what can I do to make these cells migrate less into human brain. Mm. I see. And yeah. that way you can potentially take them out safer. There are studies that show that by the time one of our glioblastoma patient passes, but, uh, you know, passes, passes away, right. there, there are tumor cells infiltrating all the way down to the brainstem, even though the tumor might be up here. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And there's oh, another wow. study. <laughs> there's another study in, from 1950s by Dr. Walter Dandy where he was very aggressive at that time. And if he had, a, if he had found a brain tumor on, the, on one side of the brain, he would take the whole half of the brain and the patients would still die from tumor on the other side of the brain. Oh, wow. Granted, in those times, they didn't have MRI. And so by the time right. they found out about tumor, it was very advanced. But that just tells you about how aggressive these tumors are. Yeah, definitely. And I actually, I have another question for you about like a surgery, a kind of like with what you do. So what do you kind of, or what are you like thinking to yourself when you're doing a neurosurgery? Like I've never, I don't know, that kind of just popped into my head. Like, what do you think to yourself? Yeah. So I always think I'm very focused about the tumor and knowing yeah. the anatomy around it and see what I'm going to do to get it out safely. Uh, I also think about the patient. I think about the patient's family and I think how whatever I do in surgery will affect his or her life. Right. And so you don't want to do anything that affects their life negatively, but you also want to get the best possible resection of the tumor so that that also improves their outcome. Right. And, 
I think of, of, you know, you can think of many things and when you're working around the carotid or the optic nerves or the motor cortex, you're always nervous. But I think that, that those nerves and that fear really makes a surgeon better. Right. I think that fearless surgeons are uh, <laughs> dangerous. <laughs> that doesn't mean that, that someone with a lot of experience, that may mean that they don't have any fear, but they, they've been through everything. And, um, and so experience is very valuable, but I'm only two years out from my training. And even though it's a eight year long training, there's things that I still don't know and, and learn every day with my patients. Right. Yeah, definitely. And um, when, like, I don't know if there's an average for this because I, I imagine that it like fluctuates quite a bit depending on the patient and the tumor like in question, but do you have like the longest surgery that you have ever done or like a shorter surgery? Like what, how yeah. long do these like last? Yeah. So the longest surgery that I've ever done was with, during residency. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a tumor that comes from the olfactory fibers in the nose. Oh, wow. And it invaded the nose, uh, invaded one eye, oh, wow. invaded into the brain. So this patient had a very large surgery, including neck dissection done by the ENT folks, mm-hmm. um, endoscopic resection of the tumor, uh, endoscopic evaluation of the orbit, had an open transfacial approach to get some of the tumor out that was touching the eye. And then we also did a, uh, an anterior scolbis approach to yeah. remove the tumor that was invading into the brain. And that surgery took 28 hours. Oh, 20. wow. Oh my gosh. So uh, during those yeah. surgeries, are you like in the operating room the entire time or do you like leave? No. Or, or like, Yeah, so, so you, you can take breaks of five, 10 minutes. Uh, those surgeries are probably my favorite surgeries because it involves working with other surgeons. Yeah. And so, you, you know, the patient is always well taken care of as either the neurosurgeons or the head and neck surgeons are working on the patient. And so when they're under the work of the, the neurosurgery people, you know, we're there. And when we switch off to do another part of the procedure, then the head and neck people are there. And so it, it's like a team teamwork yeah. approach that I, I love. Yeah, that sounds very nice, like with collaborating with other specialties, kind of, and like everybody works together. Yeah, yes, definitely. Um, so I imagine that like, just based off what we've talked about so far, that this can be a very con- time consuming career, kind of to choose like medicine in general, but especially like neurosurgery, I feel like would be very time intensive. So what do you do? Like to I know that you have a family and you have kids, a wife. So is it um, like how do you make sure that you manage your time like with a work life balance to be able to you know? Yeah. So work life balance is a little bit difficult to define in my case because I, I you know, I'm going to take this from one of my mentors, Dr. Tamago would say there's people that work to live, and right. there's people that live to work. Right. And so I I think I'm one of lives to work. I love working mm-hmm. in what I do. And so um, there's another saying that says that if you work in what you love, you don't work a day in your life or something like that. Right. Maybe uh, inaccurately translated, but <laughs> but uh, I I I take my life as my work, and then my family is part of my life, and I do everything possible to spend a lot of time with them, and I do spend a lot of time with them. And so when I'm writing a grant or reviewing a paper or doing something, 
I try to do it when the kids aren't in bed. Okay. So how do you, how do you get enough sleep? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I, I used to sleep a lot when I was your age, but uh, I think I filled my tank back then. Oh, I, I, yeah. Ever since I started residency, I, I wake up at five thirty or six, uh, right before the alarm goes off. And that's most of the time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then other things that I do when the kids go to bed is I, I like to read or watch movies and I do that till I, you know, fall asleep. Yeah. Do you have a favorite, but, uh, um, like movie? Ah, uh, yes. All the Avengers movies. Oh, you like a bit. Okay. <laughs> yes. I, I know the lines. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive. No, there's, I, I, there's different types of movies. I like those. Uh, I really like documentaries yeah. and historical documentaries, particularly. Yeah, definitely. That's nice. Um, and then I guess since you said that, like, you're kind of say that you like live to work and but you also like make time for your family and all of these things. But do you have um, like hobbies? Like, I think you said like books and uh, movies and stuff, but like um, like cooking or anything like that. Or do you think like your wife does a lot of cooking? Uh, yeah, she does a lot of cooking. She she works harder than I do, I think, with the kids. <laughs> oh, and yeah. she also has a full time job of uh, she's a research editor. Oh, wow. um, but I also love cooking and uh, I have uh, a 3D printer that I use to print chassis of remote control cars. Oh, and wow. I try to build them. And yeah, that, those are a few things that I, I, I like to do. I like building IKEA furniture. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> no, I don't. My wife always makes fun of me. She, she, like, I'm building the thing, and she's like, "That thing is backwards." And I'm about to put the last screw, and I realize that it's backwards. And I'm like, "Why?" No, but I, I don't know. I just enjoy things that that make you focused. Yeah. Anything definitely. that it is. Definitely. So, when in your um like timeline did you get married? Was it like when you were in Mexico or the United States? No. So, I met my wife at the brain tumor lab she oh. was rotating she was a rotating phd student and uh and she saw me and she fell in love immediately <laughs> no but i met her before residency <laughs> i met her before residency and then we got married in my third year of med- of residency oh okay and, then, gotcha. and we had our kids at the in the, my fifth year of residency and uh yeah that's the timeline awesome gotcha they, they turned six today oh really oh my goodness what we could have rescheduled this we have no, wait you have twins right i have twins and a two-year-old oh okay i see that's nice and they're at the playground right now having fun for their birthday yes yeah, yeah. <laughs> nice awesome we um, we got him a telescope they wanted a telescope so oh. we got him a telescope to look at the awesome. planets. That's good. Yeah. Start them out young, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Code, and, and then they're going to go to Code Ninjas. Okay. Gotcha. Good. <laughs> they, they should know that. I feel like coding is such a big thing now. Like, like everything that you want to do, if you know how to code, I feel like you can get a job like anywhere, to be honest. I know. I know. That's why if I was able to learn, if I had time to learn, I guess I can try and to learn with the MIT courses, but 
it seems very time consuming though at the same time right like that's why you do these things when you're like kind of younger and have more time maybe then like oh, you're like a full-time working old. neurosurgeon like how much time do you have <laughs> yeah Not well much. if there's something we do is we make time yeah that's time. true that's true that's true um, I was going to ask you um, if you have any tips for people like myself that want to go into neurosurgery or like even just the medical profession in general. I'm guessing is one tip to learn how to code, but like maybe there are others as well. That that help that helps a lot. Uh, I think if you want to do research like the research that you've been doing with AI and coding and analyzing big data sets, that is very useful. Uh, one tip is to keep your mind open. Um, obviously if you want to do medicine, pursue medicine, do biology in college or in high school, <clears throat> also, uh, reaching out to people to do research and see what, what the life of a neurosurgeon that does research is like, right. that is very important, but, uh, experience things before you make up your mind. Uh, you may find that, that there's some things that people that you don't want to do and, and you may decide to do something else. But the, the most important thing is, is to really know what you want to do and be honest with yourself. Don't just do neurosurgery because you think it sounds cool or because it's challenging uh, or because you want to help people with brain tumors. Do neurosurgery, oncology, do whatever you want, but you have to be happy. Otherwise, you know, you're not going to be passionate about what you do. And, and most of what drives what I do is my passion to to find a solution or find a better outcome or help the patient. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Um, yeah, I think that's like definitely one of the reasons why I am interested in going into neurosurgery, as I've like told you previously, right? It's because like, this yeah. is something that I not only want to use to be able to help people in the ways that I've seen, like just in my experiences in like hospitals, but also because it's something that like I will, I can just sit around all day and like watch those like YouTube neurosurgery videos. You know what I'm talking about? Like they do like those things on YouTube and I'm just like, this is so awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. And it becomes more awesome when you're able to do it and have a patient yourself. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. But uh, yeah. And, and from all those videos, there's also videos that are not good that people don't show of tumors of surgeries that are difficult to perform or that have a, a poor outcome. And so it's not all glamour. I, I Another thing that I say about neurosurgery is that you may think that neurosurgery is a white collar specialty, mm -hmm. but in reality it's a blue collar specialty. People that are neurosurgeons work the hardest. Yeah. And so. Yeah, I'm definitely sure of that for sure. Yeah. It sounds like very yeah. stressful, but like it's worth it if you really love it. Kind of like one of those things. And you get, you get used to it. You, you get used to the stress. Mm -hmm. Um and, and you notice it interacting with other specialties, how they deal with stress. I think uh, neurosurgery has a defined personality. Mm -hmm. uh, people can overcome uh, challenges that they have to become neurosurgeons, but there's a defined personality that, that helps you get through neurosurgery, you know, well. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was going to ask you, how many years have you been doing neurosurgery? So counting residency, it's been 10 years, 10 oh, and wow. a half years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gotcha. But, uh, but I just finished my training two and a half years ago. And so. Gotcha. And it's a, it's a process of maturation and 
honing in your skills and uh, all this stuff. But more than the skill that you need in surgery, a, a lot of the things what determines a good outcome is patient selection. When you can mm -hmm. identify which patient would benefit from what treatment. Right. That will, will prevent you from uh, having complications that you don't want. And um, it, there's a lot of that. So it's a, it's a very intricate uh, decision process that, that I enjoy. And patient selection is kind of something that it's like um, a skill that you develop over time, you would say, like from practicing. Yeah, well, from practicing and also from being able to read people's personality. I'll give you an example. How, how do you select for a patient that can have an awake craniotomy for a tumor in the speech area? Hmm. And so if you have a patient that, you know, you interact with them and they are calm and they are not stressed, stressed about uh, the procedure, they probably get through the procedure pretty well, being awake, being held in, with their head being held in place right. uh, with the, the skull open, exposing the brain and they're awake and they can do well. But if you pick a patient that is very anxious, which is very understandable, having brain surgery and anxiety. Right. Um, if you wake them up after you've done the exposure and they can tolerate those conditions, uh, it's going to be a problem. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So like the psychological so, effect kind of might influence yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember hearing from one of my colleagues when they woke up his patient, uh, his patient was not ready for waking up with all of these constraints. And, uh, and uh, it was, it, the patient had to be put back to sleep to, to do the surgery. And so, and I remember one of my patients uh, who was an engineer, he was the most logical guy, very calm and cool. Mm -hmm. And uh, he went through this case like a champion. And, wow. and, and so there's, there's a lot of things surgeon, surgeon uh, characteristics, patient characteristics. And you also have to know what you, you can do and what you can't do and shouldn't be doing. Right. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I think that I just have like one more question to close off this uh, kind of interview. And it's just like a fun question, like with you from Mexico and stuff. And I think I wonder, I was kind of curious, like what your favorite food is. Is it like a Mexican food or do you, I don't know, like what's your favorite food? <laughs> yeah so i i i love food all around <laughs> um i love tamales from mexico oh. tamales yeah they are delicious uh when i was in baltimore we identified a place where they made the best tamales ever really oh wow. uh, I, yeah i also like middle eastern food a lot um and also you know american food is also great the americana food like uh, the stuff that you can get at, at uh, you know, I don't want to say brands, <laughs> but I but I love burgers and and all that stuff. Yeah, definitely, awesome. Well, I just want to say, what about you? Which oh, is your me? favorite food? My uh, favorite food? Yes. Oh my gosh, I don't know. I kind of like a like Chinese food a little bit, uh, Ooh, like chow mein. Yes, so good. <laughs> yeah i love it. and we we also have a, a thai food place close by that is really good oh yeah so I love all that. food all food honestly like indian like i like any food any type of food. oh indian food yeah and so i'm the reason i'm asking is so we can have in lab dinners we'll have chinese food for you <laughs> okay. awesome yes that sounds fantastic <laughs> yeah 
maybe I can I cook sometime. I like to cook, so maybe I can like cook some. Oh, nice! Yeah, homemade yes. Chinese food sometime or something. Oh God! Do you know what I made the other day? I made a salmon stir fry. That's pretty good. Salmon stir fry, interesting. Yeah. Uh, someone made salmon in my house and, and I didn't like the seasoning. So I just broke it off in little <laughs> flakes and then put it in the rice and all that stuff. It was delicious. Oh, that sounds good, actually. Wow. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I've never had salmon in a stir fry, but I think maybe it's worth trying. <laughs> and then and then my wife's family and my wife, they're from Peru. And so my wife's mother makes ceviche and all this oh. Peruvian food that is delicious. Yes, delicious. that sounds good. That sounds really. I've actually I've heard of ceviche, but I've never had it before. So I don't it's know. It's delicious. It sounds good. I th I think it comes from the Japanese uh, 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 Japanese. Uh, you know, there's a lot of Japanese people in Peru, mm. and all their their influence in uh, in Peruvian cuisine. That's where uh, ceviche comes from because you know Japanese people like raw fish and sushi right and so that that's one thing uh and then the other thing about peru that i haven't visited is that uh they have probably the best restaurants around the world too really they are comparable to european restaurants and they have a bunch of high rated restaurants too so hmm. wow we might have to make food a, is good make a trip there sometime I don't know, that's yeah, awesome. when COVID when COVID stops, yeah, I know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yes, Lucy. Definitely. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for coming on today and for like talking about your experiences. Um, it's always so nice to talk to you. You know, it's like a lot of fun. Thank you, Lizzie. <laughs> thank you, Lizzie. And I'm I'm always happy to talk to you, being that you're such a driven uh, young woman and. And you want to get far in life and you're doing all these extraordinary things. And I wish you success in everything you do. And like, okay. like I said before, the doors of our lab and our practice are open to you whenever you want. Thank you very much. <laughs> in the last part of this podcast interview, Dr. Garzan Mavi talked about his research with glioblastoma and skull-based tumors. While it is currently unknown how glioblastoma arise, he leans toward the theory of them arising from stem cell populations. There are stem cells in the human brain at all stages of life. They are found in the subventricular zone and hippocampus. When doing surgery, he focuses on the tumor and anatomy surrounding it and on the patient's quality of life. For Dr. Garzon Mavdi, it's difficult to define a work-life balance because he defines himself as someone who lives to work. He spends as much time as possible with his family and enjoys 3D printing and watching movies to relax. Some tips he has are to reach out to people in the field that you want to go into, make, have experience before making decisions, do what you love, and be honest with yourself. Thank you for watching. Don't forget to like and subscribe for future videos. Follow our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for future updates.